0: The disparity in who gets asylum in the U.S. and who doesn't as the
1: war in Ukraine drives more people to the border. Within a span of just a few months, we've seen a totally different treatment when it comes to Ukrainians.
0: I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Building more homes near transit stations gets praise and pushback. I'm extremely
2: opposed to this building. This is just way too much, too big.
3: A seven-story building will stand out. Insufficient parking.
2: What is the community getting out of this?
0: Plus, there's a beautiful weekend ahead. We'll tell you where you can get out and see some art. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
3: and donate what you can, all right? Thanks.
2: The
0: war in Ukraine has forced millions of its citizens to flee the country, thousands of whom have ended up across the border in Tijuana and eventually here in San Diego. While efforts to quickly move Ukrainian refugees through the border have been praised— It has also highlighted the difficulties of non-Ukrainian migrants at the border who have waited far longer for a chance at asylum. Joining me with more on the situation is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, welcome back to the program.
1: Hello, Jade. Thank you for having me again.
0: So what's the latest on the amount of Ukrainian refugees we've seen at the border? How significantly has this group grown in recent weeks?
1: Well, it's well over 2,000 at this point in Baja, California, and more arriving every day. I mean, sources I've talked to for, for business and art stories, even friends and families who fly from Mexico City to Tijuana, say they see groups of Ukrainian at airports and on airplanes. And it has grown, like we've seen it grow before our very eyes, right? The first reported case of a Ukrainian asylum seeker coming to Tijuana once the war began was like first week of March. And that was one woman and her three children. Since then, we've seen it grow from a dozen people camped out right next to the San Ysidro border crossing, then to hundreds of people erecting a makeshift migrant camp just a little bit further away. And now we're seeing close to 1000 people in this city run shelter, the shelter that was actually the same one used in 2008 when the migrant caravan came. So it's grown from just a little bit to thousands.
0: And on the US side of the border, how have outreach groups mobilized to help facilitate this increase?
1: We've seen uh, um, an increase in mobilizations both on the U.S. and on the Tijuana side of the border. Similar situation that we saw in 2018 with the migrant caravan, right? I mean, San Diego and Tijuana have a history of these migratory influxes, and we know how to respond, right? There are several organizations that I've seen volunteering to help migrants, right? I've seen everything from mental health professionals, doctors, art teachers, even chefs helping people on both sides of the border. With the Ukrainians, we've seen something that's kind of new and, and pretty awesome, which is Ukrainian national or Americans with Ukrainian heritage coming to Tijuana and San Diego, some of them driving from hours and hours or even flying from as far away as New York to help out. A lot of border reporting, you know, particularly when it comes to migration is dark and grim and sad. And this is genuinely uplifting and has been kind of nice to to see.
0: Is there a sense that immigration services are overwhelmed in any way by the sheer number of Ukrainian refugees looking to enter the country?
1: We have to keep in mind that the Department of Homeland Security has a 47 billion dollar budget and we are the richest country in the history of the world. So the idea that allowing thousands of really poor people into the country would overwhelm a system, I I don't know how That is, I think that narrative is coming from people with a political bone in this issue. I will say CBP has had staffing issues when it comes to border wait times and even allowing people in. But when they really want to, we've seen time and time again that they can move resources around and really cut down border wait times or allow more migrants in, like we've seen with the Ukrainian nationals.
0: And, you know, to that point, In recent years, there were newly constructed processing lanes for the northbound pedestrian crossing at the East Building. Uh, They were never fully staffed, though. Do you know how they suddenly got the resources to fully staff those lanes to process people coming in from Ukraine? And why there was suddenly the political will to do so when there wasn't before?
1: Well, I think you kind of answered the question there. I don't know if it's a resource question. I see it more of as a political will question, right? I like to compare it to how during the pandemic, when we lifted those restrictions on cross-border non-essential travel, everyone was very concerned about long border wait times because there had been long border wait times throughout the pandemic. But on that day, the day that restriction was lifted, all the vehicle lanes were open, all the pedestrian inspection booths were open, and it was a breeze to the border that day. So CBP showed that when they want to, they can't really be there and open everything. But for a variety of reasons, which could be sourcing, could be staffing, could be logistics, that's not always the case.
0: There's been a lot of discussion that Ukrainian refugees have been receiving preferential or expedited treatment compared to other groups at the border. What can you tell us about this?
1: it's impossible to report on migration right now at the southern border and not see the different treatment or how discretion is offered to one group but not another. Uh, We've spent two years now documenting migration and how migrants are treated at the border during the pandemic, right? First under Trump and now under Biden. And within a span of just a few months, we've seen a totally different treatment when it comes to Ukrainians. So it's like overnight, everything that had been done for two years was just kind of done away with and they could adjust very quickly. And I want to be clear, it's not just U.S. authorities. We've seen this from Mexican authorities as well. Tijuana is not a particularly welcoming city to Haitian and Central American migrants, right? They report a lot of racism and abuse thrown at them, even from the city. So it has been kind of jarring to see, for example, right, the city of Tijuana shut down a makeshift migrant camp where Central Americans and Mexicans were living. And now Ukrainians are walking through that same camp through where it once stood and getting access to the border. It's hard to see that and not see the unfairness or the injustice in there.
0: And have you spoken with any other refugees at the border that might have shared their thoughts on this disparity and how their cases uh, have been handled?
1: I mean, look, they notice it, right? Obviously, they aren't happy about it. How how would you feel, right? I think of it as something minor, like, I don't know, someone cutting you off in traffic or someone snagging your parking spot. It sucks and it's unfair. Imagine that in a situation where you're fleeing for your life and you've been waiting over a year in a hostile country. I will say, though, that their frustration is not directed at the Ukrainians. It's directed at the unfair immigration system that our political class has. Created right? They they all recognize that like them, Ukrainians are also fleeing. So there's a sense of uh, solidarity. And I think the media should kind of be introspective right now too. I mean, there's a lot of attention, a lot of stories being written out of Tijuana, and out of out of this issue. And I think it has gotten a little bit out of hand. I mean, just this week, I saw a New York Times story about Ukrainian dogs and how hard it was to get pets across the border, which sucks because pets are part of the family. It stinks to be separated from them. But that story made no mention of the non-white asylum seekers who had been stuck at the border for months, if not years. And and just think about that, right? Dogs are getting more attention than people. When that happens, I think we really need to start being a little bit more responsible with our coverage and really put this in the larger context of what's going on.
0: I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Jade. Really appreciate you having me on.
3: Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee Cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. A year and a half ago, San Diego started a radical
0: experiment with housing policy. It approved Complete Communities, a program that allows developers to build apartments near public transit with unlimited density and unlimited height. In exchange, they have to set aside a greater share of their homes as affordable housing. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says the program is showing results and sparking opposition.
4: Construction is just getting started at 901 West Washington Street in Mission Hills. This is where Sohail Nakshab is building 54 studio apartments. They'll be compact, he says, like a Swiss army knife. We have built-in sofa that transitions and becomes a bed. We have tables that come out of the wall. Knockshop is using Complete Communities, a program that lets developers build as many apartments as will fit on a given lot, with no limits on density or height. Instead, the limit is on floor space, meaning the taller the building, the more slender it has to be. It's a new approach to housing that encourages smaller, less expensive homes. And if the goal was to get more housing built, early results show it's working. If Naksha were to build according to the site's official zoning, his project would shrink from 54 homes to nine, and the five low and middle income affordable homes in his project would be gone. Think about it. If it's only nine units and I'm already into the land for two million dollars. I have to build super high-end luxury just to recover my initial basis into the property. So these are not going to be rentals. It's just going to be super bougie units. That doesn't really add value to our community. It doesn't activate our community. Unlimited height might conjure images of skyscrapers, but most, if not all, the Complete Communities projects are around eight stories or less, Nakshab says high-rises trigger expensive building code requirements that don't make economic sense. Specifically with these urban infill sites that are so small, it consumes so much of the footprint that you're not really able to find the sweet spot of maximizing the dwelling units. That you're trying to achieve, which is the goal for everybody, is create more dwelling units. shops project is one of four apartment buildings that's been approved under Complete Communities. Another 10 projects are pending approval, and more are popping up every month. Altogether, the program has tripled the number of homes that would normally be allowed on those sites.
3: We'll have some um, on-grade parking and then we'll have a little bit of a low-grade parking.
4: Another project using Complete Communities is Shoreline. It's 100% affordable, low-income housing, mostly two and three bedrooms, right by the Grantville Trolley Station. Marie Allen of Affirmed Housing says it wasn't unlimited height or density that attracted her to Complete Communities. It was relief from development impact fees. The program gives a steep discount on those fees for affordable housing. Allen says that saved the project about a million dollars, which helped immensely when applying for affordable housing tax credits.
3: The savings that Complete Communities provided meant that we needed less subsidy from the state. And the less subsidy we asked for from the state, the more competitive we are if we're not competitive, then we have to wait another six, nine months to apply again.
4: Complete Communities is designed to be resistant to neighborhood opposition, letting projects bypass the Planning Commission and City Council and get approval directly from city staffers. But that opposition hasn't gone away.
2: I'm extremely opposed to this building. This is just way too much, too big. A seven-story building
3: will stand out, insufficient parking, and
2: what is the community getting out of this?
4: That was Nicole Phillips, Kim Emerson, Blake Thomyer, and Francis Pritchett speaking at a recent meeting of the Normal Heights Community Planning Group. They're all opposed to a 175-unit apartment building proposed on Adams Avenue. The developer intends to use complete communities to build more than six times the zoned density and more than double the height. Resident Adam Deutsch sums it up.
1: This project simply doesn't fit community plan.
4: Still, the community plan for Normal Heights hasn't been updated in a quarter century. And in a housing market where scarcity is driving steep inflation in home prices and rents, Complete Communities is proving extremely effective at getting a lot more housing built fast. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News.
0: Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. This weekend in the arts, you'll find books, site-specific art, a string quartet, jazz, and a birthday party for Shakespeare. Joining me with all the details is KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Welcome,
2: Julia. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start tonight with a performance from the Hausman Quartet. They're known for their boat deck concerts at the Maritime Museum, but this time they're performing in a small church. So tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, this is a performance of Haydn's Seven Last Words of Christ piece, and this was originally composed for a Good Friday service in the 1780s and then was adapted for a string quartet, which is what is most commonly performed to this day. It's a series of movements, including seven individual sonatas that are inspired by the seven last words of Christ. It's actually more like seven last phrases that he said throughout the crucifixion story. And there are also choral pieces. A Hausman Quartet has paired with a vocal quartet of San Diego choral performers, including Tasha Kuntz. And those chorales will be performed in between each sonata. And the final movement is called the earthquake. And that one is faster and louder than any of the others. they're performing this concert as a benefit. So it's donation based and your donation goes to one of three organizations that are working in Ukraine. It's tonight at 8pm at St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Delmar.
0: All right. And also tonight is an author talk at the book Catapult with Melissa Chadburn.
2: Tell us about her new novel. Right. It's called A Tiny Upward Shove. And one of the main characters is a woman, Marina, who dies young. She's murdered, which we learn about on the very first page. And we also meet Aswang, who is a mythical creature from her Filipino grandmother's folklore. And Aswang sort of occupies Marina as we unfold her story. Her killer is based on the real-life serial killer, Willie Picton. And Melissa Chadburn, who is based in LA, her writing is such a great blend of that really unsettling crime fiction with some magic and also a really artful style. She'll be joined in conversation by local Jack Gems, who is the author of many books and most recently the short story collection False Bingo. That's tonight at seven in person at the Book Catapult in South Park.
0: All right, and next on your list is a site-specific art installation by artist Jamie Franks. Tell us uh, how we can see that one.
2: Right, this one has been up at Ice Gallery in the Bread and Salt Complex since about early March. It's temporary and site-specific in the sense that it's made just for the space, but also, the materials used are very ephemeral. She used this sugar substitute called isomalt. It hardens into these clear glass-like fragments that she then threaded with steel wire and hung in this kind of netting on the walls. And it almost looks like ice is breaking apart and falling from the ceiling. And if it was left up on view indefinitely, it'd likely just break down due to normal humidity. And I had seen plenty of pictures of this before I went but I still fully gasped out loud when I set foot in the gallery for the very first time and even the windows are coated with this blob-like watery resin patterns so that really takes over the whole space. The gallery has open hours every Sunday from 11 to 4, but you can also make an appointment online to see it any time during normal bread and salt hours. Those are Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. I'm told this one will be up for just a few more months. And
0: Shakespeare has something for everyone. And to honor that, the Old Globe is holding a free event to celebrate his birthday. What can we expect?
2: So it's outdoors, and it's free and family friendly. This will include some Elizabethan dance workshops, fight choreography workshops, there's a puppet show, and sonnet performances with rapper Rick Scales and some of his friends, and plenty more going on. I've also heard there'll be cupcakes. The Old Globe is launching their really ambitious Henry VI project with this event, so it's going to be a chance to hear more about that program. And you can stop by the Globes Plaza on Saturday from 11 to 1.30 for the celebration, and you can find a schedule of events for the day on our calendar.
0: And now some jazz. Sons of Kemet are playing at the Belly Up on Saturday. Tell us about them.
2: Right, this is a British jazz group, and they're known for their high-energy, powerful mix of jazz, Caribbean, and African folk influence, and also rock music. They're led by saxophonist and clarinetist Shabaka Hutchins, and they just put out a new full-length album. It's called Black to the Future. This song here is called To Never Forget the Source. And I also have to mention Melanie Charles, who is touring with them and will be playing the opening set. She is an experimental jazz singer, and I highly recommend checking out her recent NPR Tiny Desk Home concert. She has this gorgeous rendition of Deep River. It's inspired by Sun Ra and Afrofuturism. And this show with Sons of Kenneth is Saturday at 9 p.m. at the Belly Up in Solana Beach. All right.
0: You can find details for these and more arts events or sign up for Julia's weekly KPBS arts newsletter at kpbs.org arts. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans. Julia, thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Jade. Have a good weekend. You too.